Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we'll be in Deuteronomy 23 tonight. Uh, we are, um, we're transitioning. 23 and 24 are kind of the last of like the civic individual practice kind of law, like how to just live your life. And you may think to yourself, boy, there's a lot of laws and they're very specific. But I would encourage you to think of how minimal Deuteronomy is as the law for an entire nation compared to, say, the state of Minnesota. And the, the thousands of laws we have that dictate absolutely every part of our life versus a more of a principled set of laws that Deuteronomy has. It's actually, historically speaking, a really simplified code for how to live and how to take care of one another and how to do those kinds of things. Um, so we're going to move. Um, we're ending this section, really. The verses, chapters 1 through 8 were kind of about religious gatherings and how to kind of move through those things and the feasts and what was going on there. And then we got into the law section back in chapter 12. So from chapter 12 all the way through here, we're getting this law for the nation, the second giving of the law, starting with the Ten Commandments and then expounding on each one of those as we've gone through. So we're kind of in the, um, uh, where we're at in verses one through eight of this chapter is on the religious gatherings and some restrictions of who gets to come into the assembly and who doesn't. But I think before we even get into it, I just want to be, these are kind of things where you can really take them out of context because if you say these people can't come into the assembly of God, you can interpret that as, well, they're not welcome in the country, they're not welcome in the city of Jerusalem, or they're not welcome in the ceremony of the assembly of God where they're on public display to other people. And what is it that God basically says, take a break or stay away for a little bit so that we can focus on God. So that's what we have for some of these pieces, starting with some people, I know this is your life verse. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Uh, uh, so the assembly of the Lord, well, this is going to be an interesting night. We just, it's kind of all the addendum ones and you get through these. So um, actually, uh, this is um, the Jewish version of this. Or if you look at rabbinical history, the assembly of the Lord, uh, the assembly of the Lord was the gathering of the elders and the leaders of the community. So this wasn't about people having access to the sacrifices for atonement or not. This wasn't something where God said these people can't have salvation or can't have atonement. This was something that just said the leaders of your people need to be, you know, people that haven't emasculated themselves. So most people interpret that, of course, as eunuchs, um, but it could really, the crushing or mutilation could be anything. And if you look at even some cultures today, self-mutilation is a huge part of the religious practice. So you have people that have disfigured themselves, pierced themselves extremely, done things with their skin. Um, uh, we have uh, cultures around the world back then did tons of this. And the Canaanite archaeology shows the Canaanites were really big into this. So if you could disfigure yourself to make yourself look like something more scary, 
that was part of their religious practice. And it's actually here in the United States, self-mutilation and surgical manipulation or changing of the body has taken a rise in interest in the United States. As we've fallen away from God, there's people that want to put little horns on their head. And that's actually starting to happen with more and more frequency in the United States. And it's just kind of weirdness. And God says, those people don't get to be one of the elders or leaders of Israel. We just, that's a distraction that puts attention on people and not on them. So it's not exclusion from the nation or atonement. It's just exclusion from visibility as one of the nation's leaders. You don't get to be in the Senate is kind of one way to read that. So, um, Yeah, we'll just keep going. Verse two: One illegitimate birth shall not, and one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So God leaves this: What is an illegitimate birth is really left open to interpretation. So throughout Israel's history, the definition of what's illegitimate changes, and it can change because the law is open to interpretation, and there's no real clear definite. So that's something that would be culturally contextualized. So um, it could mean children of adultery. It could mean children where one of the parents isn't known. Illegitimate could simply mean that you are born of a foreigner or someone who's worshipped foreign gods and that that birth was illegitimate because it didn't happen. Illegitimate could just be that you weren't circumcised when you were a kid. So illegitimate can have a ton of different meanings. Um, For most of Israel's history, it had to do with the same definition as stranger. So if you're a stranger in the land and you're not really acculturated into Israeli culture as a Hebrew, then you're not really in the assembly. You don't get to be in that leadership position, which makes some sense. Um, The word assembly there uh, in the Greek is ecclesia, which is the word that in the New Testament gets used for church. So these are the, this is kind of that definition of the the people in the church. Um, Hebrews specifically kind of lay aside this exclusion from the assembly and, and I want to read you that kind of passage. Where there is remission of these things, there's no longer an offering for sin. This is in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a brand new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So in Hebrews, they encourage new believers to actually draw near to the kingdom instead of being excluded away from the assembly like we have in this chapter. So this gets changed in the New Testament. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but extorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So that assembling of together in the New Testament is the same concept as the assembly of God here. When people gather to do worship, there's an assembly that has to happen. And that assembly is something that should be held as holy. With Jesus Christ, there's no one excluded from the assembly. So if anyone in the room has some weird body piercing or something like that, you're still welcome to come before the throne of God because things have been atoned for now. And that's what Hebrews says. So this is one of those big questions of Deuteronomy. When do we take laws in Deuteronomy and say that's part of old ancient Israel culture? And what are some of the laws that we bring forward today because they, there's a principle there that we need to carry? And this was a question that came up last week, I think, in the conversation. And as I was studying this week, the answer just came to me. How do you know when something's culturally contextualized in the Bible? Because the Bible says it's culturally contextualized. 
And I think that's a great principle to go with. When there's actually a portion of the Bible that says we don't do that anymore, then the Bible explains itself really well. So I went back and started looking these up. And that's a whole geek trail I'm not going to take you on tonight. But it's really consistent with most of the laws or principles in Deuteronomy that are kind of weird to us, like mutilated people can't come into the church. There's actually a passage like the book of Hebrews where it explains that that doesn't apply anymore. So we get that interpretation for us. We don't have to think our own righteousness and come up with our own game plan. The Bible actually tells it. So when do we contextualize the Bible? When the Bible says to contextualize it or bring it into that. So in this case, you could, if you wanted to take it literally, you could say that if someone's an illegitimate birth, then you wait 10 generations and then they can, that 11th generation can come into the assembly, giving plenty of time for that family to acculturate and be part of it. And at that point, there's leadership that happens there. 10 generations is a long time. I can't name my 10th generation grandpa. Like that's a huge, I mean, that's just now you're here. Um, so that's a huge thing. What I think this does though, and again, this is a culturally contextualized principle. It doesn't apply to us anymore because the Bible says it doesn't apply to us. But what it does is it sets up the Jewish people to keep genealogies, very meticulous genealogies, where if you can't remember your 10th generation grandpa, you just go down to the temp temple in Jerusalem and you look up your 10th generation grandpa. And you can go down and all the genealogies are being kept down at the temple. And that's, in fact, what happens in Israel. So this law that has to do with 10th generation creates a culture of record keeping in Israel that's like nothing else on earth at the time. And it's not something like humans come up with, like really. You got to have some sort of motivation to keep those kind of records. And for the Jews, they do. Um, or you can, you know, think of yourself as having your own planet like Mormons. And then you keep good genealogies because you want to know who's on your planet. Um, but that's a whole different conversation. Verse three, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of their descendants shall enter, enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they didn't meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethra of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So those who stand against believers or overtly try to curse believers, God's telling them not to lose a lot of sleep over those people, right? So if they're going after you, God doesn't obligate his people to be a walking mat, and I think sometimes like genteel Christianity means we have to be a walking mat for everybody, but that's really not a biblical Christianity. Like there is a point where if somebody's actually attacking you or trying to hurt you, it's not your job to just accept that all of the time. It also isn't your job to go attack back. You let the Lord fight your battles. But in this case, um, that capitulation that could happen, the Lord's telling them don't do that with the Ammonites and the Moabites. Is this culturally contextualized? Why, yes, it is, because there's no Ammonites or Moabites anymore. So that's two groups of people that just aren't walking the earth anymore. So we can't really apply this one today. The principle, of course, is still kind of this idea that there are people out there that are hostile to God's people, and they're actively trying to attack God's people. Those people don't get to be part of our worship services. Those people don't get to be in our church, right? And if they're just coming to destroy and curse, then we don't really need them in our Bible study tonight right? And if they want to come and hear the Bible, that's great. But if they're coming in with ill intent and they're trying to divide and destroy, 
that they're not, they, we don't have to, we're not obligated to welcome them. And that's something that's a, a principle you could apply from this. But again, there's a lot of room for interpretation on that. God turns the curse into a blessing. I like that God doesn't necessarily allow things unless they're for his plan for good. So when you got these people that are really trying to hurt believers, God doesn't allow that hurt or, or persecution to happen beyond his plan for the world. And in this particular case, he actually intervened and turned that curse into a blessing because his plan was different than what Balaam and the Moabites and Ammonites had. Do not seek their peace. This becomes an issue for Israel. Again, this sets up a lot of the rest of the Old Testament. Um, Israel has their own peace, but it's not their job to pursue other people's peace. So if the Ammonites and Moabites are on the border and they're not attacking, that was previous chapters, you just let them stew and boil. And they can be as angry and mad as they want. It's not Israel's job to try to make them happy. And that's kind of a tough concept sometimes because we want to be at peace with everyone as much as we can. That's also a biblical principle. So when you have people like this that are, that are just stewing and boiling and fuming about things, sometimes our instinct is to just say, I'll say whatever it takes to stop the fuming. But when they're actively trying to hurt people because of their love of God, there's no fixing that. God has to do something in their heart that we can't necessarily do. So he also says, nor do you seek their prosperity, which is kind of prophetic because at this point there are a bunch of people out in the wilderness. They don't really even have a city yet. So he's assuming that at some point in the future, Israel will have prosperity that they could give some then to other countries. Um, but they don't at this point in time. So let them be mad. It's okay to just keep your distance from your enemies. And to, that's one way to just be at peace. Verse 7. You shall not abhor an Edomite. So this is kind of the reverse of the last one. The last one is you shall let them kind of be mad on their own. But this one's more like Edomites you're going to be nice to. For he's your younger brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because they were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So for only three generations, an Egyptian can actually be part of the assembly. And part of that is they showed hospitality and they showed kindness. So these are groups of people that aren't believers in Yahweh that showed kindness and hospitality, some of the things that God's commanded his people to do. And he's basically saying these cultures are more amenable to our people and you can integrate them into our culture but these other cultures are not amenable to our people and you're never going to make peace with them because they hate you. And you look at political events today and, and nations around the world, there are some nations that are different from the United States, not that we're necessarily a Christian nation, but there are some cultures that are more amenable to Western civilization than others. And having some sort of judgment might be the principle you draw from this, that there are just some nations that are set against the Western culture and the people of God. And there are just some groups of people that are set against the Bible itself. So we even saw that this last week in the Congress. Somebody got up and read the Bible and other people shouted them down. So there are, there is that kind of conflict in, the, in, in our country, outside the country, nationally. Those kinds of things happen. So how do you deal with that is one of the questions. So the verse 8, the, th the children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. As long as they are living under the law, this implies that Israel's to be a kind of melting pot, that Israel is not an ethnicity. It's not a race. It's a people that follow the Lord, and there's ways to integrate any group of people into Israel throughout history. And we've seen that in past Bible studies where there's actually rules and laws for how to integrate people into the people of God. 
If they submit to Yahweh, they're a brother and they're a sister, and it's just that easy. So there are ways to do that. So when it comes to these other nations, there's some culturation process that has to happen. Essentially, this is an immigration law. So if someone from Egypt moves up to Israel, three generations later, they can run for office. They can be part of that assembly and they can join in. So the Pharisees in the first century took these laws way out of proportion and they added a ton of rules around this. So the simplicity of these laws, which would have played themselves out by the first century, are still getting applied. So when the Ethiopian comes up to the temple, remember Philip preaches to the Ethiopian? Odds are that Ethiopian got to Jerusalem and they wouldn't let him into the temple courtyards because he was an Ethiopian. He wasn't part of Egypt. Even though these passages don't, they specifically mention Moabites, uh, um, Amorites, Edomites, and Egyptians. It says nothing about Ethiopians, but you have Pharisees excluding people from the temple because they're not Jews. So the first century Pharisees had taken these laws and turned them into an ethnic kind of barrier for people to come into the nation, and it was never meant to be that. So this is just one of the ways this starts to play out. God sees this happening, and this is, by the way, I say first century because that's when Jesus shows up. Jesus shuts the whole thing down at that point. He's had enough of the Jews taking these laws and manipulating them and twisting them. So he starts a new thing and a new wineskin through Jesus Christ, a new covenant. So it's not God's plan to exclude people. It's just God's plan to be discerning. Like with most of the laws we've seen in the Bible, there's some balance that needs to be had. So you make some judgment calls around that sort of thing. Verse 9, when the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. We're going to get into some weird stuff now. Um, so this is the cleanliness of the campsite. And if, you're, if the army is going out, for the people of God, you're going to keep the campsite clean. The general principle is keep yourself from wicked things. We've had a lot of that defined already. But the point is, for the soldiers of God, keep yourself clean. Don't mess around with the garbage. And it's a timeless truth we can pull. This is not culturally contextualized because it follows right through. And, and Jesus preaches many of the same things. If there's a man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes, then he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. So we'll keep this PG-13. Occurrences in the night can be anything. Most people read that as a nocturnal emission, but it could be just getting the flu. Like you wake up in the middle of the night, you run to the bathroom and something unclean comes out of you. Uh, it could be um, dysentery. I mean, these are soldiers in a camp, in an army, that happens. So it could be any number of things. And the general principle is if that happens, just don't make a scene about it. Don't make a big deal. Just get yourself out of the camp go camp in the woods for a day. When the sun sets the next day, you wash up and you just kind of sneak back into camp in the night. There's no sin here, but think of the disease that stops from spreading. If we're talking about the flu and dysentery, most flus are 24 hours. So this takes that thing from spreading in the camp. Uncleanness spreads. And that's the general principle you can get from this. So this is not standard practice 3,500 3, years ago. Most soldiers in, in these old campaigns died of exposure and starvation and dysentery. So if we can take one of those three things and reduce it, that gives the Jews a significant advantage in battle campaigns. But there are some things that are just private, some particularly private to guys. The principle here is keep that private and don't make a 
big scene about it and don't stay in your tent and make it a scene for other people. Washing is good. Leviticus 15 has all the rules around wash your hands, stay clean, be a clean human being. Verse 12, I'm just going to keep moving. Also, you shall have a place out of the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment when you sit down, read that squat for relief. Outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuge. Like a cat, cover that stuff up. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. This hasn't changed today. If you're going to be the people of God, like what would it be like if you came over tonight and we actually had a pile of poop sitting right in the front lobby because Grant couldn't make it to the bathroom. <laughs> and he just decided to go there. It would be disgusting and distracting, and we wouldn't have our hearts ready to hear the word. So I love the reason here. Like, <laughs> literally speaking, if you got a poop, do it outside the camp. Like, be decent to each other and keep it clean. Bury your scat is like a good principle. This is the beginning of outhouses in human history. So these wonderful things that we take for granted. Why, the, the reason why is the part that cracks me up in verse 14, because God's walking through your camp and God doesn't want to step in your poop. Think about that on a personal level too. If you're following the Lord and he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm among you. Think of what that means. If that's the case and we meet in the name of Jesus Christ and he's among us, Literally, don't poop in the middle of that because God might step in it, but don't bring sin and garbage and filth and corruption into that either because God's walking between our relationships and he's the thing that ties us together. So keep your life clean. God doesn't want to step in it at the most basic level and at a spiritual level. Um, I love that idea. So the principle here is be neat, be clean. Some more miscellaneous laws. You shall not give back to the, his master, the slave who's escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. Remember the law last week about if your neighbor's donkey is lost, you take the donkey in, you feed it, you give it back to the owner. Not the case with humans. Humans are different. And we see that is explained here. Bond servanthood has been explained in Leviticus. Beautiful image of what it looks like, but a bond servant or a slave, when you read it in the Old Testament, is a lot like an employee-employer relationship in America today. It's very similar. And this principle is why we know that's the case. For what we think of as slaves, you don't just get to walk away from a slave owner and leave. But in Jewish tradition, you could. If you had a master that was unfair to you or inappropriate or something, you just leave. And there's, under the law, you shall not give that person back. There's no such thing as permanent servitude in the Old Testament. What's sick is in early America, they used the Bible to justify slavery. It's sick how they did that because they twisted it to say what they wanted it to say for their own benefit. But they skipped this verse conveniently, which is when somebody runs away, you don't give them back because they're running away for a reason. The only reason you go into servitude is because you have a debt to pay off or if you're, there's some court case where you had to pay off a certain amount of work to that person because of something you did, a crime. So if you run away from a slave owner, then your debt or your crime is not paid off. You have to find another way to pay it off. Kind of like us, when we buy a house, we have a house debt to pay off. Therefore, we go to work for people that maybe we don't like that much, and we work night and day, long days, 
They said it was only going to be eight hours, but it's really 12 hours. And we just keep plugging away at the work because we got a home debt to pay off. And that's the same thing that's going on here. If they left their master, the debt doesn't then go away. It's not paid. So they got to find some other way to pay that debt off. And this is just an act of mercy. It restrains slave ownership in Israel. Um, it limits that. Um, and it is, again, one more way in which God is taking care of the weak. Those people that are humbled in society should be taken care of. 1 Corinthians 12, 22. Much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. We need people in our society that are taken care of that maybe aren't in a position of strength. And in the church, that's true too. If you've got a brand new believer that's struggling with ideas, this group is awesome about that, by the way. Compliments to you. We've had people visit our Bible study that are clearly kind of newer in the faith and struggling with things. And you guys are so graceful with them and so welcoming and so hospitable. I love to see that. And this is just one of those things where you take care of the people, you bring them in and they can dwell in your midst. It's okay for people that are in servitude to sin to be in the assembly or to be in your house and to take care of people and disciple them and minister to them. And this is one of those situations. You got a runaway person and they just need a place to stay and you just put them up and take care of them for a while. Verse 17, there shall be no ritual harlot or the daughters of Israel. So ladies, there will be no harlotry in, 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 in God's law. You're not supposed to do that. Or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. So guys, there will be no harlotry either. So this applies to both genders. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog, which is a dog is what they call the male prostitute, to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So we've seen abomination to the Lord your God before. Abominations to God don't change. It's still the same then as it is today. What God thought was an abomination then, prostitution, still an abomination today. Ritual harlot uh, was basically, again, pagan practices. Most pagan temples had ritual harlots. So you could go down to the temple and they just integrated harlotry into the temple practice. And the priests would act like pimps. They would take a piece of the money off those harlotry interactions and they would use religion to justify all of it. Um, so you would have a, some sort of an experience. It felt great. And you'd think one way is to say, oh, that's just pagan religions that that happens in. But actually, it's not just pagan religions. Back in the um, 1600s, the Pope actually started putting taxes on brothels and bars. So the Pope decided if we're going to have harlotry anyway in Europe, we're going to at least get a piece of that for the church. So when you see a passage like this where it says you shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of dog into the sanctuary of the Lord your God, that's an abomination. What the Pope was doing there was in direct contradiction to the Bible. And more people left the Catholic Church. It was just one of those things where the Catholic Church was getting further and further away from the scriptures, and then people would just leave because they would read it and go, that's not how that should go. So I like to say they wouldn't put a sign if somebody hadn't actually tried doing it. So when God puts something in his Bible, it's because there's actually somebody out there that thought that might be a great idea. Verse 19, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest or usury on money or food or anything that's lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you can charge interest, but to your brother, you don't charge interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. So inside the body of Christ, general Christian tradition is we don't do business with each other. 
if someone came to Bible study and all they wanted to do is sell us insurance, which Steph and I have experienced, you leave that Bible study or you tell that person to leave the Bible study. God would prefer that his body stays together and the person trying to sell the insurance leaves. So if anyone here is planning to sell insurance and not just insurance, anything, we don't do business with each other. It's just not how we work. Or if we do, we take it and we're intentional about separating it from Bible study. Because if the business relationship goes wrong, somebody feels uncomfortable. I would like to say that same principle applies <clears throat> uh, with a lot of areas of our life that maybe we do out in the world, but we don't do when we're here at Bible study. This just isn't the place for it, right? So God has a law about that. Like, don't charge interest to somebody that's your friend. So if Paul's destitute and he needs money, we've already been told in earlier chapters, we sp we're supposed to take care of Paul. And we make sure that Paul doesn't end up on the street, right? We pay some bills. We cover some things. Sorry, Paul. You know, you got to work outside. So this could happen. One broken ankle could do this. We'll take care of Paul. What we don't do is charge Paul interest on that. Or another principle that I like to say is never borrow anything to anybody if you ever expect to get it back. Just give it. And if you can't give it, and then don't. And trust that the Lord will bring somebody else around to kind of do it. Help as you can, but don't charge interest to brothers and sisters. So why can they do it with foreigners? In part because foreigners have other options. So if somebody honestly like wanted to borrow money and they're not part of the assembly, they're not part of the community of God, and yeah, at that point, you're deal doing a banking relationship. It's a business transaction. It's not part of your family that you're doing the business with. So you got the insiders and the outsiders when it comes to that. Um, and God, the promise there is that God will bless you. If you keep to that, if you resist the temptation to do business with the people you do worship with, God's going to actually bless your life and take care of you. And my Steph and I have seen that to be really true. Um, verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, that's not a sin. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God that you have promised with your mouth. We've seen this before. This is kind of a repeat, but I want to spend time on it again. When we make a vow to the Lord your God, it's seemingly, in the last one we dealt with too, there's anytime something comes out of our mouth and we've taken on the name of God or the banner of God and that what comes out of our mouth becomes untrue, we are not representing a God of truth. So it's a big deal that what comes out of our mouth is truth. And last time we kind of talked about exaggerations, we talked about minimizing, we talked about kind of having bad self-image, that these are all things that are just not truth coming out of our mouth. But this one specifically dealing with vows, um, delaying and paying it is not good, which means we don't do payment plans. If you've got a debt or something, you pay it as quick as you can. And then there's the out in verse 20, 21 that goes with it, It's or in verse 22, it's not a sin to not make vows. So as a believer, you can just go through life and not promise things. But in our flesh, we love to promise things. Somebody says, oh, you're going to be there Monday night? We say, yeah, I'll be there Monday night. But we don't really have control if we even are going to get our next heartbeat. Like that's not in our control. So we've seen a lot of Christians that add things to it like, Lord willing, I'll be there Monday night. My intention is to be there Monday night. But if something, you know, if the Lord has me doing something else, I got to, you know, I'll do everything I can do to be there Monday night. There's being careful with your words is something that's holy and to be sloppy with your words, verse 21, it's very strong language. It would be a sin to you. The to you there is actually an accounting term. 
it's against you in your ledger when you do that. So it's not something you want to add to because that ledger needs to be paid off at some point. Matthew 5, verse 34 and 37, same principle in the New Testament. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more of these is from the evil one. The enemy wants us to say things that aren't true because it destroys our witness of God. It absolutely decimates it. The only vow that the Bible asks humans to make is the vow of marriage and a lifetime commitment to the Lord. And those two vows are things that once made, you don't break them. But we're going to get into divorce law too. Oh, you got that. So that idea of vowing and doing it, this is a really, I think for mature believers, this becomes one of the really hard things to kind of work out in your life because you're changing your own verbal patterns when you get into conversations with people and how you talk about things. It's definitely a sign of maturity as somebody grows that they become more a person of their word. And when somebody says they're going to do something, they don't do it. Just this week we had an interaction. I won't say their name because this goes out on a podcast. I had an interaction with a guy. He's a pastor of a church and he has been for many, many years. And he promised that he would write a piece for a magazine. Well, the deadline for the magazine's coming up. I get a phone call. Oh, I, know, I didn't get to the piece. And he went on for five, 10 minutes about, with all these excuses about why he didn't get it written. And of course, you know, as a graceful, nice believer thing, I'm like, that's cool. No worries. We'll get it in the next magazine. And you hang up. So you have a nice Minnesota, Minnesota nice transaction with him. But you hang up and I turn to my wife and I say, I got to say, this guy's leading a church full of people and he doesn't keep his word. What, does, what kind of testimony is that? And of course there's reasons it didn't get done, but none of the reasons were good. He had a month to do it. So if you're going to say you're going to do it, keep your word. And it's one of those basic principles that you kind of live in life is that if you, or don't make the promise. I'll start writing now. I don't know if I can make the deadline or not. Well, that's not what the person wants to hear. This gets really hard at work, by the way, when your boss just wants to hear, yes, it will be done. But you say, Zach's struggling with this, right? Yes, I'll work as hard as I can on it. I can't promise that deadline. I'll move as quick and fast as I can. You got to just trust that I'm going to give you everything I got. But I'm not going to promise these deadlines because that's a vow. And if I make a vow and I break it, it's a sin against me before my God. Again, great way to evangelize too and just bring up, bring the kingdom back in there. But a lot of times people want to hear those promises from other people because it's an act of control and power. And God's kingdom isn't of this world. And this is one of those areas where believers kind of get into it with this world. So if you sign a one-year contract with a company, you keep your contract. But we live in a society where people break contracts all the time. But when we sign our name on something, we keep it. To everything in our power, we keep it. And God knows if it's out of your power, like if things out of your control happen. Like he's gracious and he understands and he's merciful with that. But if it's in our power and will at all, we keep our promises. So we're careful before we sign contracts because it'll be held against us if we don't keep things. If we make a vow and God's watching that happen as one of his servants, we keep our word. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep. Your words have impact. And it's just one of those ways. Verse 24, one of those ways we can show people we love the Lord. Verse 24, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, 
You shall not use a sickle or your neighbors on your neighbor's standing grain. So apparently people would grow crops and their neighbors would come by and start harvesting somebody else's crops. So there wouldn't be a sign if somebody hadn't tried this. So there's a distinction made in this passage between eating and harvesting. It's okay when you come to my house to eat my food. Welcome. Eat my food. It's not okay if you come to my house with grocery bags, clean out my fridge, and load your car. Do you see the difference? So if you're traveling, this is a great act of mercy for people that are traveling through Israel. If you're traveling through Israel in this country, it's perfectly legal to grab a handful of grapes and eat on the way. Thus, the commerce in Israel thrives. Because it's a great, if you're going to pick a route to go from point A to point B and you can go through Israel, you can cut your food budget down. There's less bandits on the road. They've cleared the roads of stumbling blocks. This is a great place to go. To, they do fair weights. We got that last week, right? So the economy of Israel continues to thrive when there's peace in the land. This is just one of those reasons. Great place to travel. If you're going to go on a vacation and you know you can just get free food when you're there, I pick that vacation over this vacation. It makes just a ton of sense. Hospitality is the principle here, obviously. Um, this does not, however, justify stealing candy from the grocery store where they've put a price on it. It's already been harvested. Somebody's wrapped the little Jolly Rancher. Not okay to steal those. Um, this comes into play in the New Testament. Again, I think God knows what he's putting in his own Bible. And in Luke 6, verses 1 through 5, there's a story. It came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked ears of corn and did not eat, rubbing them in their hands. Interesting phrase, right? You remember this story? The disciples are eating, they're just picking some corn and they rub them in their hands. That's a reference to the verse that we see up here. In verse 25, it says, you may pluck the heads with your hand. So what the writer is saying in Luke is that they weren't breaking the law. They were keeping to the law because they were just using their hands. And then certain of the Pharisees said to them, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath days? So the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of doing something that's not lawful. But the law says that you can do that. And it doesn't have a qualifier on only certain days of the week. Because there's a difference between eating and harvesting that applies to the work code too. So God's law makes sense if you actually read it. I can pick some corn from the field with my hands and eat food on a, on a Sabbath because that's not laboring. It's not working. If I pull out the sickle, that's work and that shouldn't happen on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees don't question, of course, that he's eating. They, they imply that he's working on the Sabbath. They don't accuse him of stealing. They accuse him of working because of this law that we're reading in Deuteronomy right now. Anyways. They were innocent. Jesus was innocent. He did not break the law of God in eating that corn. Then we get to Deuteronomy 24, continuing on. It's almost like there isn't a chapter break. Now we get to divorce, and we get to hear God's word on divorce. I'll encourage you in this, because we have a lot of divorce in our country, and you, most people in the room, probably know somebody or related to somebody that's gotten a divorce. The Bible actually allows divorce under certain circumstances. But when Jesus is cornered with this question of divorce, he sends people back to Genesis. And the law of God was that one man and one woman should be married forever. It's a vow. You keep it. And the only reason the divorce laws are here, according to Jesus, is because people were doing it and God wanted to limit the disruption that caused in the community and in the family. 
So Moses' law is accounting for something like pooping in the camp. Pooping in the camp was happening, therefore they made a law. There wouldn't be a sign if people weren't doing it. It doesn't mean that God's intention was ever that people would poop in the camp. And the same principle applies to divorce law. God's intention is that it never happens. But the reality is it does happen and people do that. And because of that, God wants to limit the damages in the same way he did with pooping in the camp. Boy, that's a comparison. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, notice that there's two verbs there. You take a wife and you marry her. To take a wife implies choosing or picking somebody so that you have actually made a commitment to or a decision to marry somebody. It's not an emotional thing. You don't fall in love in Vegas and get married. It's something where you take a wife because you've picked or you've chosen that woman to be your wife and to marry her is actually the consummation of the marriage or the sexual act. So those two things happen. You've picked someone and you've had sex with somebody. And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. Ouch. So not God's intention and not God's ideal. Um, but the law here overrules the husband just simply dismissing a woman and kicking her out of the house, which would put shame on that woman. And she probably wouldn't be able to get remarried. So she'd have to go back to her family, which would treat her horribly because she wasn't able to please her husband. We have some versions of this. If you go to any counselor in the United States, we still have these kind of sick relationships in our country too. So this isn't something that's just unique to the ancient world. Pleasing your husband is something that kind of is a dysfunctional relationship. Um, you should want to please your husband, but you shouldn't like do it out of desperation. You should do it out of love. So this is a situation where that becomes a problem. It's a problem because in Matthew 19:8. Jesus says that it was because of the hardness of their hearts that they weren't loving and they weren't compassionate and they weren't caring. So you marry this woman and you're displeased with her because maybe she burps a lot or something. There's something about her she, that's unclean. She throws up all the time and you just don't want her in your house anymore. Um, but that takes a really hard heart, doesn't it? To like just kick someone out because you're not happy with what you thought you were going to get married. Because if you made the decision, you should keep it. Like find a way to like burping. You know, make it part of your repertoire. So God's plan was the two become one flesh, Matthew 19, 6. And here we say, it says, when a man in verse 1. Actually, that applies both ways in Jewish tradition. Mark 10, 12 says, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, applying to the divorce law. So this could go either direction. So the, the passage is when a man does, but the application of it we see in Mark is actually that women could divorce their husband for the same reason. So it goes two ways. The divorce there is the word carried thuth. It's the first use we've seen in the Bible. We haven't seen that word before, so I like first use. It means to cut something off or to chop it off. So in the same way that when Christians become believers, they're grafted into the house of Israel. This is the same idea of chopping that branch off again for something that has been glued together. And that then you go, okay, well, that's interesting because the word marriage actually has to do with bonding or gluing something where two become one flesh. So when you take something that's as holy and sacred as marriage that's bonded in that way, to split it up is tough. So I want to spend some time with divorce. Um, some uncleanness is vague again, so it can apply to a lot of different situations. The, again, the Pharisees took this as 
anything that the husband didn't like about his wife. He could not like how she ate and just got sick of hearing her, the tone of her voice and could kick her out of the house. So the divorce law got really loose by the first century, and it's one of the things Jesus went after him about. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, this idea of uncleanness or impropriety, and, and I think a good reading of this is that there's some sort of nakedness or infidelity or idol worship going on. So there's some sort of an adultery happening in our passage, the uncleanness piece, because erva in the Hebrew means nakedness or impropriety. It basically means you caught your wife in adultery or you caught your wife with other gods because that would make her unclean. And those are the two things we've seen that make you unclean. There's a third thing that makes you unclean, which is leprosy. So the, of the Bible so far, we've seen that idol worship, adultery, and leprosy will make you ceremonially unclean. And that might be a reason a husband wants somebody out of the house. That makes kind of sense. If my wife got leprosy, like I wouldn't want to catch it because it is contagious. So you might want to do that. But it limits the husband in three ways. They have to give a certificate of divorce. They have to put it in writing. They have to then put it in her hand. So they have to be man enough or woman enough to actually face-to-face -face serve a, that to somebody. And then they can send them out of the house, uh, which is not to kick them out of the house or brutally abandon them, but to send them on their way. And we have laws about when you send people out of your house, you're supposed to hook them up with resources. Remember that from way back in... Is that in numbers? You know, you're supposed to take care of somebody. So it's, a, it's not the same thing as just kicking somebody out in the middle of the night. Jesus returns to this original Urva meaning when we see him talk about divorce in Matthew 19.9. In Matthew 19.9, it says, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus comes back to just that meaning of adultery is the only reason you get a divorce. If somebody cheated on you with another person, or if they cheated on you with another god, and they decided to go off to another religion. So the word divorce then only gets used two other times in the Old Testament. It's really interesting. The other times it gets used besides this chapter is in reference to God divorcing Israel because of their adultery, that he sends them out or put, he leaves their presence and leaves the temple. So Jeremiah 3.8, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear and went and played the harlot too. So this image of divorce, God puts it in here because it's part of what's about to happen with Israel. And he treats the whole nation of Israel as a husband could do this. And then you say, well, wait, how did God give a certificate of divorce to Israel? And the answer to that is the entire book of Jeremiah is a certificate of divorce for the nation of Israel at the time of their prosperity he stands there and tells them they're about to get a divorce. And they get cast out. They actually go off to Babylon and they leave the Holy Land or the Promised Land because they're sent out from the Promised Land. Christians then differ on divorce and so did the Hebrews. That's one of my points here. There's a broad thing in lots of religious traditions that differ on the principle of divorce, how you get a divorce, what you do. Even in today's country as a Judeo-Christian nation, we still have a certificate of divorce. There's still a process of divorce. It goes to the courts so that there's a sending out process that happens. Um, but we've gotten rid of the whole face-to-face -face delivery of the paperwork, which I think would solve some things. But the thing that's agreed upon amongst all those traditions around the divorce idea is that it's not God's plan because Jesus made that really clear. God, divorce is always bad. It's this severing that happens. Um, so when Jehovah puts away Israel uh, in an act of divorce, 
this spiritual adultery. Um, he asks about it and this certificate gets brought up again, like in Isaiah 50, it says, where's the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? So he actually references this law, God does when he's talking through his prophets. Um, putting it in her hand, uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah kind of puts it in the nation's hand and they go off. I already talked about that. Verse two, when she departed, when she has departed from his house and goes to become another's man's wife, if the latter, latter husband detests her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, this is the unluckiest woman ever, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as a wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So one through four, verses one through four are all one sentence. Notice there's no periods in there. It's a strong law. This act of divorce is a severing or a cutting off of something that God has brought together. It's why at our marriages we say, you know, we don't want to separate what God's brought together, right? It's, it's an abomination that you should play with that. And to have a wife that you've divorced that later on you hook up with or reconnect. There's some people that brag like, yeah, my husband and wife, we've been married three times. And they get divorced and connected, divorced and connected. What's abominable about that before God is you're totally disregarding that God's putting something holy and spiritual in that marriage. That it's something that's sacred. And you're just playing with it like it doesn't matter. And that dismissal is something that humans do when they don't care about the law of God. And God's saying that's not okay to do that. Don't treat marriage as something that's light or fluffy. Don't get married five, six times in your life like it doesn't mean anything, right? And this poor woman, like in this example, but remember it can flip too. A husband and a wife can do the same thing. The interesting part here is that in the last verse, in verse four, it says, you shall not bring sin on the land. When a culture starts to treat marriage like it's nothing, it's actually a sin on the land. It hurts the whole country. And you can see what this does to kids. And then you got a generation where you got kids of divorce that think marriage isn't that special. And that just keeps going generation after generation. It just gets worse and worse till it doesn't mean anything. And the relationship, the marriage has no value anymore. And that hurts not just the people involved, but the whole land gets hurt by these practices. So it's a false witness when you make a vow and you don't keep it. That's another thing. You're breaking that law. Um, it's adultery at some level if you're not treating this thing as sacred. So it, the idea of divorce and, and being loose with relationships is something that's um, an extremely serious thing to God. The point of this law in practicality is marriage is a permanent vow, but so is divorce. When you've divorced someone, then that's a permanent severing from that person. It doesn't go back the other way. Verse five, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife on whom he has taken. This is an awesome law. And we should do this in America. Like we should get this down to Congress and say, newlyweds get one year to just be newlyweds. Happy, wonderful thing. Notice that it comes right after the divorce law. So maybe part of the solution of a nation that's gone down that path is a nation that respects newlyweds and how precious that is. So I did some research. What's so special about the first year of marriage? And it's interesting. And this idea that a husband 
brings happiness to his wife is the phrase I just kind of stuck on. And it's the translation is what it means in the English. The husband does something where he brings happiness to the woman. And there's a, a piece there. There's this intimacy or oneness that marriage should look like our relationship with Christ, where Christ brings happiness to us. And the happiness isn't the rah-rah roller coaster happiness. The happiness is the abide, the tove, that, that sense of all is well with the world that happens. Abide, right? When, this is interesting, so we're going to get back into sex talks. There's an oxytocin chemical that's created in the hypothalamus at times of sex, childbirth, and child feeding that help women to draw connections to other people socially. And this is a really powerful chemical because it creates a sense of peace with women. And women that have less of this in their system can have higher depression, higher rates of anxiety. So it actually works in the reverse if it's loosely treated. This is really complex stuff. And I'm getting this just like internet search, like WebMD kind of stuff, right? And they're doing a lot of research on oxytocin right now because Though it's produced in those moments of stimulation or physical pleasure for women, it actually has a psychological influence and it helps women to trust other people that they're connected with in those experiences. It's part of what creates a mother-child relationship when that child is in their first year of life. And after a while, that connection becomes something where women will like easily sacrifice their life for their child because there's complete connection between them and that child but they'll do the same thing for their husband. And if that connection period happens, that first year of marriage happens right, it looks a lot like a mother-son relationship or a mother-daughter relationship in that first year of childbearing. It's a really interesting, powerful chemical that happens there. Oxytocin's also released in the male brain. Well, we, we don't have as, as much of it and it doesn't get released as much as it does for women, but it helps men to build social connections and relationships. We're actually more ready and less anxious about social connections when we have more oxytocin in our system. So then your answer would say, well, then forget about marriage. Let's have as much sex as possible so we can connect with as many people as possible. But oxytocin works in the reverse if you're doing it with multiple people. It has a cumulative effect with the same individual, which is why breastfeeding with the child works like it does, is because it has a cumulative effect with that human being that you're connecting with. So for women and men that have random sexual encounters with multiple people, it actually works in the reverse. It creates a boundary between that person and other human beings to where they can't connect properly with others. And we see this acted out in like weird sex fetish stuff where people have to do more and more extreme stuff to get the same results because they're not producing the oxytocin because their body's saying, what's the point? You're not gonna be with the same person again. So it stops producing it altogether when you have that kind of a thing going on. So chemically, it's like God made human beings to raise their children and have a marriage between one man and one woman. And that relationship becomes stronger and stronger to the point where you're there, um, you're like one person with that other person. You become extremely connected with them. Both women and men act that way in those relationships. So... If you're in a home where that's not happiness happening, Proverbs has lots of stuff about a home where the husband and wife are not happy together. And it says things like, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious or angry woman, Proverbs 21, 19. 
Why is the woman unhappy? Because the guy's not making her happy. And he's not taking the time to nurture and husband his wife and vice versa. The wife needs to nurture and husband, and husband her husband. So when that relationship isn't where two people are taking care of each other, it gets contentious, it gets angry, it gets mean. That's not a cause for divorce. These two concepts are connected with each other. Most divorces happen because people just can't stand each other anymore. They don't even want to live in the same home with each other anymore. But that happens because they didn't invest the time with each other that they should have when they first got married. So take the first year off and just be a husband and wife. You got to tell your friends you can't come on Friday night because you're going to be husband and wife together and go on a date. Go on a date and spend that time and build that relationship. I just think that's the coolest thing in the world when a man takes a new wife. Don't go out to war or be charged with anything. I think that our ministers, would, we'd have a lot less problem with our clergy in America if when they first got married, they didn't do anything in the ministry. They just took a year off and they worked at Walmart and they just went home, took care of their wife and their wife did the same and took care of their husband. And you just had that year where you just took some time off from each other versus the ministry where you're caring for everybody else. Let that oxytocin develop with that one person and build a lifetime relationship that you can have. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge for he takes one's living in the pledge. Verse six, we don't have millstones anymore. Well, that doesn't apply anymore. Yeah, it does. If somebody runs a t-shirt company, you don't take their silk screen as a loan deposit and clatter on a loan. Don't take people's means of livelihood away if you're claiming something from them if they have to pay a debt. Verse seven, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel, because that happens, and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. Apparently kidnapping is as bad as murder. Why? Because you're dehumanizing the person that you took in kidnapping. You're treating them like they're not a human. Or at the very least, you're treating them like they're less important than you. And that's ratash. That's killing somebody in your mind. So kidnapping, bad. Joseph's brothers deserved death for what they did. It was horrible. They sold him and they treated him poorly. Verse 8, take heed in an out, unless anybody wanted to slow down on verse 7 and have more conversation around kidnapping. All right, good. Verse 8, take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that if you carefully observe and do all that the priests, the Levites shall teach you, just as I commanded them, then you shall be careful to do. Remember that what the Lord your God did to Miriam, that's in Numbers chapter 12, if you want to note the cross-reference, on the way when you came out of Egypt. So anybody can get leprosy. Leprosy is an image for th sin throughout the Old Testament. The word take heed is shamar. Uh, we've seen that word a lot already. It means to guard like a soldier would guard something. So it got used for Adam in Genesis 2.15. He was supposed to shamar the garden. Abraham was supposed to shamar the covenant with God, Genesis 17. Israel was supposed to shamar the law in Exodus 13, Leviticus 18, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 4. Like it's a common theme. There's certain things in life that a believer is supposed to guard and keep watch over. And when leprosy shows up, which doesn't happen every day for us, but if you think of leprosy as an image of sin, it happens all the time for us. We're supposed to keep watch and we're supposed to be on guard. And when it shows up in our life, we're supposed to do like we were told back in Leviticus. We're supposed to do everything according to how the priests were told. Leviticus 13 and 14 specifically has rules around leprosy, which we've gone through already and we don't need to go through them again. Lepers are supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to have less contact with other people so that that sickness doesn't transmute to other people and become a plague. So they get little leper cities outside the Jewish cities. And when they are cured of their leprosy, 
which happens only with Jesus Christ curing people and with God curing Miriam. They're supposed to go into the temple and have a priest check them over and make sure they're clean. And once they're clean, they come back into society. So if we see things like leprosy, we're supposed to remember what the Lord told us. So those that get sick are supposed to remove themselves from the grouping of people. This makes so much sense. If any of you had the flu this morning, don't come to Bible study. Stay home. When you're healthy again, make sure that you're clean and that you're not sick anymore and you come back to Bible study. The reason why you quarantine leprosy or anyone that gets sick is so that the rest of the people can go about their day-to-day -day life. And we don't have to change what we do because somebody's sick. If you're sick, you take care of other people by getting yourself away from other people. So it's a principle in the Bible that protects people from mass contagion of diseases. And it's a principle that has really held true all the way up until about a year ago. We're pretty much around the world. If somebody got sick, they stayed home. And then the rest of the world could go about their business. But we're trying something new on earth right now to see if we can do it better today. And we'll see how it goes. But right now, the statistics are showing it doesn't really stop diseases when healthy people stay home. It only stops diseases when sick people stay home. So verse 10, we can get into that afterwards if you want to. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go to his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside. And the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge to you. God's just showing respect for people. You know, you're down on your luck. You owe somebody money. You can't pay them. And then the collector comes to your house like the mafia people and they break into your house and scare you and all that. And he's saying, no, you just knock on the door and you wait outside. You don't get to go rampaging through somebody's home because they owe you money. Think of this restraint that God's telling his people to have. They can go through their home and decide what they can find to pay you off. But you don't get to just go through and pick out their favorite stuff because you don't know what has sentimental value. That person has dignity. Just because somebody owes you money, you don't own them. And there's a human dignity that has to stay in place. Verse 12, if the man is poor, you don't keep his pledge overnight. You shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you. And it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. If somebody's so broke that all they have to borrow you in exchange for money is the robe on their back, because these would be like super robes back then. You'd use them as your bedroll. You'd have like a sleeping bag. Like it was a very important thing. So you don't take it overnight is the rule here because this is what people would sleep in. So again, there's basic human dignity. Just because somebody owes you money, you don't get to take away their sleeping bag. Like there's certain basic levels of provision that if you can just provide for them, I love this. God's actually going to pay the debt for you. It shall be accounted unto you as righteousness before the Lord your God. So if somebody owes you so much that you're going to collect the shirt off their back, this is where that phrase comes from, you actually let them keep their shirt and God's going to pay you back accordingly some way, shape, or form. So I'll take my vow from God on that and just trust that I'll get paid off. But there's a mercy here. It's one of the things in Amos 2.8 that Israel is accused of doing exactly this to people. It's why God gets mad at Israel. It's because they start doing this kind of stuff. The weakest people in society become the person that can bless you, verse 13, and God will honor that blessing. In other words, the most impoverished people in our community are the ones that God listens to when it comes to who they're going to bless. This is a super cool concept. It means the weakest of us become the strongest through the blessing that gets given because there's a direct line to God. Isn't that cool? 
And it's one of those things that when it's before the Lord your God, verse 13, it means God's watching each of these situations when somebody's in these spots. Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer them and say, Surely I say to you, insomuch as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. That whole verse, we love that verse. If you do whatever you do to these people, you've done to me. That principle comes right out of Deuteronomy. That God's watching and accounting for these situations. And when Jesus says that, it wasn't like original to Jesus. He's just remembering Deuteronomy. And he's saying, okay, this is how that works. And this is the principle that's there. It's a reflection of God's love for us and God's love for the weakest among us. That he created every human being on this earth and he wants that honor and respect for us to give that to other people too. And there are people that are down on their luck and we see them and they, we encounter them and God asks for us to pay attention to those situations. And God gives credit. If that's going to be an, a good trade, like if God's promising credit on that, I'm building up treasures in heaven for every time I do or give something to people who need in those situations. Another idea here is, by the way, destitution is, is defined as not having clothing to sleep through the night. That's a different level of destitution than what we call poor people in America. Like these are people that literally don't have clothes on their back. And these people still exist all over this planet in different places. So we do still have these situations and we still try to find ways to help clothe and feed people. Verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brothers or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and don't let the sun go down on it for he's poor and he's set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. This is the reverse of the last passage where they bless you for doing good. If you don't pay them in a timely way, they can also curse you. So there's blessings and curses. And the weakest among us have kind of a direct line to giving blessings and giving curses to people. There's a kindness here that happens. Uh, basically, the principle is to pay people in a timely way. Don't like have them work for you and then not pay them. That's really mean. Um, and we don't really do that in America. We try to pay people when they work for us. There's an implication here that poor people work, which is kind of foreign to a welfare state kind of attitude. These poor people are actually getting up in the morning and doing work for somebody. And the trade for that is that you're going to have clothes on your back and you're going to have food in your belly because you've done some work. So again and again and again, Jesus personifies this kind of kindness to the meek and the weak and the tired and the poor and the sick and the wretched and the hungry and the thirsty. And if you do these things, if you give somebody who's thirsty something to drink, God accounts that to your credit and he'll pay you back for it. Mercy love, be decent to your neighbor. And in this case, verse 14, not just your neighbor, but also anyone who's within your gates. So if you encounter someone in need, you're supposed to take care of somebody. So verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for their own sin. This is the principle of individual accountability. I'm not accountable for what you do and you're not accountable for what I do. And we can, we can understand that. Um, this is a limitation that applies. Second Kings verse 14, this gets applied. Amaziah had, there was a revolt and they killed his father and he became king. And he went out and slaughtered everybody that killed his father, enemies of the people of God. And he didn't kill their children. He actually took care of their children and found them places to live based on this law that the people who were part of the rebellion, it wasn't the kid's fault. So the innocent get to 
escape that kind of consequence. Um, I think this also applies. There's two implications for today. We know family. I mean, we know people where their kids have just gone astray. And that's heartbreaking for a Christian parent when you've raised your kids the right way and they just go off the rails in some other direction. This passage kind of lets you off the hook. It's once they're of age and they're out of your home, it's not really your responsibility anymore. You aren't held accountable to what your kids do after that age of accountability. And the, the reverse is true too. The second implication is we have some people that grow up in homes where clearly parents aren't believers and they don't live a godly lifestyle. So you grow up in that kind of home and that can be heartbreaking too because you think, man, God's not going to listen to me or see me. Like, I don't even know how to be a believer. Um, and God doesn't hold that against you. And God knows where he puts you in, in the home you've grown up in. And I think that you're often equipped to minister to certain kinds of people based on the childhood that you had. Um, verse 17, don't pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I, I command you to do this thing. Uh, 17 kind of sums up everything we've been reading in the last two chapters. Just be nice. Like love your neighbor and take care of your neighbor. And it's a command, verse 18. It's not a small thing that God sees that we do that. <clears throat> Interestingly, by the time we see Jesus in his ministry, there's no mention of his father. So most people believe that Joseph has died by the time Jesus starts his ministry, uh, making his mom a widow. Um, and he often calls himself a stranger in a strange land. This is not his home and this is not his kingdom. So as believers, one of the translations or pieces of this is that Jesus actually takes this station when he comes to earth and he falls into this role that's described in verse 17. And you shall not pervert justice to that particular person as a direct command that you're not supposed to twist the law when you see somebody that's fatherless or a widow or something into that effect. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus later on is they do pervert justice in this situation. So after the list of all the heroes of the faith, like Hebrews 11, we love that. Like it's an awesome chapter that summarizes the whole Old Testament. <clears throat> it says this after that list, all of these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and they were assured to them, they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Every single person of faith is trusting in a kingdom of God and we are strangers on this earth in the same way that this law says that justice shouldn't be perverted against them. So every time there's a martyr, this is, that's breaking this law. Every time a godly person is treated inappropriately, it's breaking this law. Because we don't live necessarily on this world. We live with the hope of the next world. And that's the point of Hebrews, is that he's, they're connecting this idea that the stranger is us. And we can't think that we're in the in crowd anymore if we're following the Lord. We're actually in a world that's not necessarily wired for us. Verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It'll be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God might bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive trees, don't go back after the boughs a second time. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't go glean it afterwards. It'll be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And, I, and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Really similar to the last passage, 
God's reasoning for this or the rationale for it is that you used to be a slave in Egypt too. You used to be lost in your sin. So how dare you try to take everything for yourself when there's other people out there that need that too. So when we glean everything for ourselves and we accumulate everything for ourselves and we never think of people outside of our, of our personal self, we're doing something where we're putting ourselves above other people. And we're supposed to be putting ourselves at an equal level with everyone that we are encountered with, even if we're in times of prosperity. So <clears throat> the promise of wealth isn't there yet. At this point, Israel doesn't have vineyards. They don't have olive trees and they don't, they don't own anything. So this is a promise of prosperity that when they get to prosperity, they're supposed to act in a certain way and be generous to the poor. This practice means that poor people can get up on a Monday morning. They can go out to a vineyard and get the gleanings of the grapes even after they've already gone through and, and harvested. So this becomes like the plot line for the book of Ruth where they're out gleaning in the fields. It's part of the culture of Israel is that poor people or people that don't have their own resources can still eat. They can still have clothes on their back because you're never going to get below the point where you can have clothes because of the law we just read. So you've got food and you've got clothing. And for people within the gates, the city can't reject people. So that's why when Jesus and Peter and the disciples are walking by and there's people sitting on the street, you still can have people in your cities with clothes that can go out and get food during the day. Food, clothing, and shelter are all accounted for under the law. That's their welfare system. So this is the last piece of that, the food. And they command people that have land to make sure that they leave a little bit for people that need something. Um, I think that makes a place where poor people could still provide for themselves with some dignity. Like if they work really hard, they can go out and get those grapes. And as long as it's not the Sabbath, um, they can like eat and be full and do that sort of thing. And they can, they can have some dignity. So they don't get handouts, but they do get the opportunity to go get their own resources. Um, Matthew 25, great chapter, good Bible study for this week. Just add it into your list, whatever your reading thing is. When Jesus talks about the hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, the naked, the sick, the prisoners, he's referring to the law. He's referring to these rules in Deuteronomy where those people have mercy and you give those people mercy. So if we're going to do God in our lives, we need to think of ways to do those things because Matthew and Matthew 25, Jesus ties all of this mercy stuff into the judgment of God. This is how God decides who the sheep are and who the goats are. And the sheep, by the way, are the good people that are part of God's flock and the goats are not. They're not the greatest of all time. They're the people that God's going to actually burn and cast out and do very, very bad things to the goats. So it's not good to be a goat. And what defines you as a goat or a sheep is how you take care of the poor and how you take care of the people around you. Your generosity is what defines you in that way, according to Matthew 25. There's other, ele other elements in other chapters, but when we're looking at this law in this chapter, that's a huge piece of how we're judged by God. So God's watching. Whatever you do to the least of these, you're doing unto God. Whatever you don't do to the least of these, you're, doing, you're not doing for God. So poor people in our community, the meekest people in our church, are the ones we should be going out of our way the most to take care of. Really convicting principle to live by. We had a long talk about this Last time we got to the poverty kind of stuff. But this is one of those things where if we seek in our hearts, it's pretty hard to think we've followed that law throughout our whole life. Because there's at some point you're just like, no, I want my money for my own Taco Bell run. And you don't help and you don't do things and you don't take care of people. And this is one of those principles. And again, this applies to the brothers, the, the, 
there's a relational aspect to all of this. If I got people going through my field every morning to get food, I can go talk to those people. Like there's an actual human connection and relationship here. And I think one of the dangers in, the, in a modern economy is we can have many segments of separation between us and the people that get service. And that's not what God's intention was. God's intention was relational. People in your city, the stranger that comes through your field, the people that you know in your life that owe you money, right? So these, it's easy to just say, well, I give my money to whatever ministry and I take care of that part of my life. It's a lot harder to say, I actually take care of somebody who I know their name, I know their family, I know their situation, and I have a relationship with them, and they're in my life because I work with them, they're part of my church, they're in the city gates, and I do things to take care of people that are around me. That's a lot more convicting because that's a lot more work. And that's the story of the Good Samaritan, the person who actually went out of the way of their life and the busyness of everything they're doing to take care of another human being. That's what Jesus dressed up as amazing. That's the grace and love that he wants us to have for other people, that we're willing to step out of our path and our life and our plan to actually do something for somebody else and not be so busy that we just walk by them on the street or we leave them to be destitute in our homes. So very convicting. When we come back next time, I was going to try to knock off Deuteronomy, the next one, but then I thought, nah, I can just take my time with these two chapters because the next one's amazing. We're done with most of the civic law. What we get to in the next chapter is kind of the laws that have everything to do with Jesus Christ. The image of God stuff is phenomenal in the next chapter. So if you want to read ahead and start praying about it and seeing that, it is absolutely stunning what gets set up. So it's kind of like they, they're still part of the law section for one more chapter, but it, those last laws are things that really set the principle of, of atonement up. Um, and this, this idea of what makes Jesus our legal propitiation for sins is all set up in the next chapter. But for the Hebrews, they're probably reading it going, what does chapter 25 have to do with anything? But when Jesus came out, the disciples went nuts over chapter 25. And the New Testament really spends time on it going, look at what Jesus just accomplished through this. So anyways, that's next week. Dear Lord and King, we thank you. I thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we read all these laws. They seem sometimes disconnected. They seem just out there, Lord, but you wouldn't put them in your word if they didn't mean something and show us who you are. So Lord, we love you. We want to get to know you. We want to absorb and meditate on every aspect of your character and who you are as our God. And Lord, you're a God of mercy and love and justice. And Lord, we love those things. They're not always easy. Sometimes they mean we put our ourselves to the side and we we live for you or live for other people lord and that's so hard to do but lord we know your character we know your will and we know your heart for people and we can see that in your law and in your word that you restrain the powerful you hold back the the selfish uh, you create laws for a nation of just kindness and mercy and neighborliness uh, lord we just ache for the day when you're on your throne and you rule in that kind of way we look forward to your kingdom, Lord, and may it come soon, uh, where law and justice and love just dominate our day-to-day -day lives and we can live at peace. Lord, we thank you for uh, the gift we have in having brothers and sisters in the faith that we can live our lives with and connect with, Lord. We just thank you for everything you've provided us with, the food, the clothing, the shelter, um, and Lord, the comfort that we live in. We thank you for those things. Lord, help us to have eyes to see who you want us to serve and who you want us to help. Bring those people into our lives so that we can be tested 
with an opportunity to be generous and to sacrifice of our own uh, lives and plans to serve and help others. Lord, we just look forward for those chances so we can show people your grace and your mercy in following your law. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.